Well, hey, welcome. My name is Brandon. I serve as the lead pastor here at Midtown. We're so glad to have you, particularly if you're new. Um, if you're online watching, we apologize. We've had some technical difficulties, which is our way, um, and uh, not anything having to do with the folks that are running it. It's just sometimes it doesn't work. So thank you guys for being patient. Uh, we're live streaming on Facebook now instead of YouTube, so glad to have you guys with us, hopefully. Um, we are going to continue in our series uh, through the book of Philippians on what it looks like to be a wholehearted community. And if you're, again, like a type A and you like to know the point up front, here it is very simply. Um, we want to look at today, through the lens of the life of Paul, what it looks like to move from a competency-based framework for life to a communion-based framework for life. So hear these words. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Turn to Philippians chapter 3 or on your device. Go ahead and uh, flip over to Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 to 11. The Apostle Paul says, Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own, which comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, uh, if you remember last week, or if you missed last week, actually, um, this is a continuation of uh, Paul's kind of major theme in the book of Philippians. Last week, we looked at what's called the Christ hymn or the Messiah hymn, a poem that would have been read and recited in the early church uh, in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, and you see a lot of the same language showing up in here, and so Paul is using um, his own personal example. He just talked about Timothy, he just talked about uh, Epaphroditus in this previous chapter, now he's going to go into his own story here and continue a conversation he's been having, having with the Philippians really since he started the church. This is just a, a, a warning. Paul says, um, as for these final things, or finally, he says, I want to continue to encourage you. Again, we hear this, rejoice in the Lord. Not rejoicing in uh, the suffering that we're experiencing, but rejoicing in God who is with us in our suffering. And he says, I'm writing the same things to you um, as a safeguard. I wanna, I wanna safeguard you against some things that I believe are gonna happen in the future. And so there's this warning to watch out for, look out for the dogs. Now, um, the dogs is a, it's a bit of a play on words. So in almost every uh, house or government building in Rome or in Roman cities, they would have pictures of guard dogs uh, 
on the floor, actually etched into the floor. Um, and so Paul's saying, watch out for these dogs. He's kind of taking a phrase they've been familiar with, and he's applying it to this group of people, these, these watchdogs for Judaism. And, and these dogs that he's talking about um, are essentially, he's talking about this conflict that he's had for a while with a, a group of Jewish Christians um, who we believe were not actually in Philippi at the time. There's no evidence that Paul is writing, like to facing a current threat. But he's writing about these Jewish Christians who are preaching essentially the good news of King Jesus, the gospel, plus uh, the Mosaic Law. So it's the gospel plus. So it's, it's a little twist on the gospel. It's not a, a heresy exactly in the way that we might think of it. It's the gospel plus the Mosaic Law, plus circumcision, plus the dietary food laws, plus Sabbath practices. And so Paul, what the Jewish Christians were trying to teach essentially, and they do this in different urban areas and places where Paul was planting churches, is that one of the evidences, one of the ways that you know that you're in Christ, the one of the ways you know you're okay, you're righteous, that's the key phrase, that you know you're okay with God and with other people, is that you've been circumcised. It's evidence that you're a part of the covenant family. And what Paul says that kind of thinking leads to, the real concern that Paul has is not with the law, not with circumcision per se, not with Sabbath, not with food laws, but it's what it does. It's this thing that happens in us when we begin to put our confidence in these things. So Paul says the problem is they're boasting in, they're glorying in, they have, they've put their confidence in the flesh. Now, this word flesh is a word we've talked about over the years at some. It's the Greek word sarks. And it's a word that has a range of meanings in the New Testament, but here it's intended as like a double entendre. It has multiple meanings, multiple layers. So Paul says they're putting their confidence literally in their flesh, literally in their circumcision, and the flesh is also a way of saying they're putting their confidence in their Jewish ethnicity, in their Jewish cultural heritage, and, and, and that's a problem. So Paul is gonna issue this challenge to them to live a different way, to not put their confidence in the flesh, to not put their confidence in what I'll call this competency framework for life, but rather to put their confidence in knowing Jesus, this communion framework for life. And I love how Paul does this. I just wanna encourage this again. Pay attention, I'll circle back to this again. Pay attention not just to Paul's message, but to his methods. I mean, he's a brilliant rhetorician. He's a brilliant communicator, and the way that he seeks to persuade is so powerful because he doesn't do it just with abstract doctrinal and theological truth. Here we're gonna see he dives into his own autobiography, into his own narrative, and he tells his story. He tells his story, which is an amazing story. This is the most, most in-depth picture we get into the heart and the life of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. It occurs only here in this depth, and it's a beautiful and compelling account of how Jesus entered into Paul's story and reoriented his entire life framework from one of competency and achievement and success to one of communion. And, and so this is kind of a two-part series. This week, we're gonna enter into this, and I want us to see kind of the, the unmaking of the old Paul, and, and I want us to see the remaking of Paul into a wholehearted leader and then two weeks from now, next we're gonna take a break from Philippians um, and do just a, a standalone sermon. Two weeks from now, we're gonna come back to this and Paul's actually gonna say, now, as you've seen this in me, which again, the most powerful way, I think, to argue for life in Christ and satisfaction in Christ is to have actually experienced that in your own life, to embody that. So Paul's gonna say, now, you've seen this in me, now I want you to imitate me and pursue this kind of maturity in your own life as I imitate Christ. So let's look at this in terms of Paul's story. 
Paul here says, watch out for these dogs. Watch out for these people who live according to an achievement-oriented, success-oriented, competency-based paradigm. And by way of contrast, Paul jumps in and he says, if you want to live that way, if you think this is the way forward in life, if you think this is what's gonna bring you happiness and satisfaction and joy, then I can show you what it actually looks like. I've, I've been there. I've, I've lived in this paradigm. And so Paul's essentially gonna, gonna use them and contrast his previous life with, with this life that they're offering up for them, which apparently was a great temptation for many people. It brought a sense of ease and comfort while many others were suffering. And so Paul is essentially saying, if you wanna play the confidence in the flesh game, or who is more Jewish, I win. Like Paul, this, one person uh, said this, like this is the original rap boast. This is, he's the original Drake. Like he's calling out uh, this other group and saying, if you wanna play the, the boasting game, let me boast. I'll show you what it looks like to be the most Jewish. Paul is essentially saying, if you wanna go toe-to-toe on righteousness, if you wanna boast, if you wanna have confidence, I've got a righteousness that comes from my privilege, that comes from my upbringing, my performance within this social context of the Judaistic kind of mosaic system. Paul says, let me, let me just unpack that for you. Let me show you my LinkedIn profile. Let me show you my resume. This is Paul's like drop the mic moment when he's in the interview and he just pushes his resume across. Paul says a couple of things. He says, I had a superior cultural heritage. I'm actually more Jewish than these people who are claiming to be Jewish. He says, I was a Jew by birth. Notice he reads off his resume here. I have more reason to boast. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. He says, I'm not a convert. The people of Israel, this word people is the word genos, from which we get our word race or ethnicity. I am from a Torah observant Jewish family. I was born into this. I wasn't brought into this from the outside. I am an authentic Jew, a Jew by birth. He says, I'm, I'm of the best tribe. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, which if you don't know anything about kind of how the Israelite kind of Jewish hierarchy worked, the tribe of Benjamin uh, was the tribe of, of Saul. Paul actually was named after King Saul. It was the favored tribe that was blessed by Moses as the beloved of the Lord, one of the two tribes at the time of Paul that could actually, including the, the tribe of Judah, Jesus' tribe, that could actually trace their lineage back to Abraham. So Paul says, I'm from the best tribe, I'm a Jew, and I'm, I'm a full Hebrew, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, I'm a Hebrew-speaking Jew, so I speak the language as well, born to Hebrew parents. In other words, I don't have an accent when I speak Hebrew. Uh, even though Paul was born in Tarsus, he was not Hellenized. There were other Jews that assimilated into Greek culture, but they were not from Jewish Hebrew-speaking families. Paul says, I grew up in this. This is me. I have a superior heritage. I have a superior education. Paul says, I'm a Pharisee, which basically meant uh, when uh, the Pharisees, they get knocked around a lot and People are hard on them. But the reality is the Pharisees were a renewal movement in first century Judaism. They sought to, to, to move away from what they felt like was the relaxation of the law towards more progressive elements within uh, Judaism, and they sought to kind of reclaim a strict observance to the Torah. They were OCD about Torah observance. These were the legal scholars, the legal experts in the law, and they sought to align themselves externally to, in a really scrupulous way, to every piece of the law. So Paul, when he was a kid, 
um, actually moved back to, he moved to Jerusalem, his family, and he received the best education possible in the law, in the temple, under one of the elite scholars in the law, Gamaliel. So Paul says, I have a superior education. There's nobody that knows the law better than me. I've got a PhD in this. He also mentions his superior activism. Paul was an activist. He wasn't just one who read the law. He actually was a zealot. He was zealous. He had this radical zeal. He was so like angry that people were not obeying the law that he actually went out and began to find those who didn't keep the law, namely Christians, he says, and I begin to persecute the way of Jesus, the ecclesia, the called out ones. He essentially becomes a religious terrorist, which is what happens when we get gripped by self-righteous anger. We find others who don't line up to our expectations and we begin to oppress them. It's the heart of religious terrorism. Paul becomes a religious terrorist. He says, I'm a superior activist. I have superior competence, lastly, Paul says. I'm a hustler. I'm a guy who knows how to crush it when it comes to achievement. He says, I'm faultless according to the law. Doesn't mean he was perfect. What Paul's saying here, this word faultless was a technical legal legal term, blameless, some of your translations might say. It's about self-discipline. Paul says, I'm the most self-disciplined person you've ever met when it comes to obeying the external regulations of the law, specifically related to my practice of Sabbath, the food and dietary laws, and and ritual cleanliness. In other words, when Paul did make a mistake and when he did falter, he went to the temple, he confessed his sins, and, and he essentially engaged in this process of ritual purification when he broke a commandment. So he says, man, I'm faultless according to the law. I'm extremely competent within this system. So in summary, what Paul is saying to us is in this social system of temple Judaism in which I was raised, I was crushing it. Like, to us, somebody who was circumcised, somebody who had Paul's resume, we laugh and we're like, that's it? That's the pinnacle of society? Yeah, in Paul's day, that means I have it all. I've reached the top of this social system, which I found myself, both due to the circumstances of my birth, like I was born into this, and my incredible self-discipline. I was the most competent. I was the most successful. I was the most accomplished dude in Jerusalem. He was one of the 40 under 40, you could say, in Jerusalem. If this is what it means to succeed at life, Paul says, nobody has more confidence than me. Now, we laugh at this as kind of pedantic and silly, but the reality is I think we can all acknowledge we have our own competency framework that we've been raised in, by the way, imparted to us by culture that defines what it means for us to be righteous, for us to be right in the sight of God, in the sight of other people, in the sight of our own souls, or to be successful, to be accomplished. And there's a religious version of this that many of us play. We grow up in the church. We're taught that this is what it means to excel, be moral, be right, have your doctrine tightened up, make sure you say all the liturgies, say your prayers at night. And there's some of us that excelled in that system, right? Our dads were elders or deacons. We aspired to be a certain kind of person in the church. There's an achievement ladder within religion, and we find ourselves in our 20s. This is why I believe many actually fall away from uh, the faith in their 20s because they're playing the wrong game, trying to climb the wrong ladders. And what gets exposed in your 20s is, oh, that doesn't work. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't lead me to become more joyful. It actually makes me bitter and self-righteous and angry and despairing. So there's a religious version of that, and then there's kind of a secular version of that paradigm. This is the competency framework. 
I've learned to put my confidence in my own ability. I am capable on my own of reaching the top. And the goal of life is the accumulation of achievements, status, recognition. I'm better than you. David Brooks, New York Times author, uh, editor, wrote a great book recently called The Second Mountain, if you're familiar with this. And he talks about this, actually he's right on this, talking about this very thing. He says there's two ways to live. One is uh, what we call first mountain living, the second is second mountain living. And the first one, the first mountain I think he's talking about this competence framework. The goals he says on the first mountain, we usually climb this mountain in our 20s and our 30s. Some of us are still on there in our 40s and 50s. They're the normal goals that our culture endorses, to be a success, to be well thought of, to get invited into the right social circles, to experience personal happiness. It's all the normal stuff, a nice home, a nice family, nice vacations, good food, and good friends. He said there's two ways to pursue um, that that kind of framework. One is through what uh, Soren Kierkegaard called the aesthetic life. He lamented over the aesthetic life. The aesthetic life, the aesthetic path, some of us may, have, may be on this path or some combination of these two, uh, it's to lead your life as if it were a piece of art, to judge your life by aesthetic criteria. So you're not chasing accolades, you're not chasing the fruit of capitalism, you've kind of rebelled against that, but for you it's more aesthetic. Is, life, is my life interesting or dull? Is my life pretty or ugly? Is my life pleasurable or painful? He says, such a person schedules a meditation retreat here, a Burning Man visit there, a fellowship one year and another one the next. There's swing dancing and soul cycle and Krav Maga and occasionally a cool art gallery on a Sunday afternoon. And the goal of life becomes, you know, basically capturing these things, putting them out on Instagram so you can make everyone else jealous of the cool life that you're living. Now, you never say that, but it's what's happening. You tell yourself that relationships really matter But after you've had 20 or 30 of these social encounters in a week or a month, you forget what it's all supposed to be about in the first place. You have thousands of conversations, he says, and you remember none. A person in this phase, on this path, sees life as possibilities to be experienced, not not commitments to be fulfilled or ideals to be lived out. You will hover above everything, but never land on anything. And in the end, each, in, each individual day is fun, but doesn't seem to add up to anything. You do that for long enough, and he says, actually, as a society, if we do this for long enough, it leads to what he calls liquid modernity, where we're all just experiencing this sense of everything's fluid, everything's fragile, everything's changing. We're having all these experiences, and it doesn't satisfy. We get bored. We experience what the philosophers call ennui, just complete, checked out, and bored with life. So that's some of us. Others of us are on the achievement path, he says. Uh, he, he quotes the Danish novelist Matthias Dalsgaard, who calls this the, insecure, the life of the insecure overachiever. There's this baseline emptiness in our lives that we try to fill with achievement, and so life becomes, essentially, when you graduate college, the rest of your life becomes an extension of school. You approach life as a ruthless pragmatist, trying to achieve and achieve and achieve and put at bay kind of the ambiguity of life by attaching yourself to a brand, to a company, to a vision of success, right? This is the person that graduates college and is like, well, I don't know what my life's about, so I'll just go to grad school a couple of times and rack up a bunch of debt. 
I'll, I'll, I'll do this residency, I'll jump into an or fellowship. Again, nothing wrong with these things. I'll, I'll get into Teach for America. I'll join a big name firm or hospital. Or maybe I'm not gonna do it on the for-profit side, I'll actually get into the non-profit side and I'll do it over there. And you spend your 20s and 30s mentor shopping. Maybe you get married and then even your family life becomes an opportunity to express this. You don't do achievement, but you do it through your children. Your children become the primary means. What school they get into, what kind of status they accumulate, what kind of trips you take them on. Like these, these are all ways that we can play this game. And it ends always, as David Foster Wallace so brilliantly put it, with sadness. DFW says this in an interview he did on his book, Infinite Jest. There's something particularly sad about it, something that doesn't have very much to do with physical circumstances or the economy or any of the stuff that gets talked about in the news. It's more like a stomach-level sadness. I see it in myself and my friends in different ways. It manifests itself as a kind of lostness. The sadness that this book is about and that I was going through was a real American type of sadness. I was white, upper middle class, obscenely well-educated, had way more career sex success than I could have legitimately hoped for, and was sort of adrift. A lot of my friends were in the same way. Some of them were deeply into drugs. Others, their drug of choice, he says, was workaholism. Some were going to singles bars every night. You could see it played out in 20 different ways, but it's the same thing. Like how many of us find ourselves throwing ourselves into our work thinking that's gonna take away the ache. You can read about this in the New York Times, you can read about this in the Atlantic, there are all kinds of articles out there about how miserable we are making work our identity. Brooks says that we can work so hard in our 20s and 30s climbing to the top of the first mountain only to get to the top and realize there's another mountain. Only to realize it's actually not satisfying or maybe we get knocked off by a failure or we get hit by a crosswind of something unexpected, right? You get to the top and your marriage falls apart. You get to the top and you start to struggle with addictions, lying, pretending, hiding, cancer hits, tragedy hits. And all of a sudden you find yourself down in the valley and you realize the competency framework always fails. Paul climbed this first mountain only to find it unsatisfying. Then he met Jesus. He had a new vision of his life on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter nine. And God gave him a, a bigger, more satisfying, more compelling vision for success than he could have ever imagined this old competency framework. And that's what the rest of this is about. He experiences what you call in business a pivot. Right, if you're scaling a company, the goal is to you know, grow and pivot, grow and pivot, grow and pivot. That's easier to do in business, I've found, than it is to do in life. What do you do when you find that your framework for life isn't working anymore when you hit 30, 35, 40, 45? You're not experiencing the wholeheartedness, the quality of life that you thought you would. What do you do when you discover your entire life paradigm is wrong? You turn around. That's what the Bible calls repentance. So the Bible calls conversion is a spiritual pivot. And this is what happens to Paul. He has this revelation of Jesus and he realizes not really so much about his sin because Paul knew that sin was wrong. He actually gets reoriented in his view of his success. See, that's where some of us need to go. We need to deal with not our sins and our failures but our successes. You see, for Paul, the big revelation was how he was dealing with the success 
He was finding his identity in it. He was finding his competency in it, his sense of self in it. Tim Keller says, what often makes you a Christian, what makes you a Christian and what Paul learned is not just to repent of your sin, but also to learn to repent of your righteousness. Repenting of his sin just made him an unsuccessful Pharisee. Repenting of his righteousness made him a follower of Jesus. And that's what we see here in the rest of this text. Paul doing this new accounting, saying, I used to think this was important, but now I think this is important. Whatever gain I had, Paul says in verse seven, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This gain-loss terminology is accounting. Some of you are accountants. Imagine a ledger. On the one side is assets, on the other is liabilities. On the one side is profit, on the other side is loss. Paul said, all this stuff from my past that I used to think that was where life was, it's been transferred from the asset column, from the profit column, to the loss column. When I met Jesus, Paul says, everything changed. Everything changed. Gains become loss. And not just this, Paul says, but everything. For the sake of Christ, I count everything as loss for the sake of knowing Jesus. Anything that could be worth achieving or having or possessing or acquiring, loss, Paul says. Now, it's important to know that Paul uses the word counted here. It's the same word in chapter two where we're supposed to count others better than ourselves. Notice Paul does not say, he does not say that being Jewish was wrong. I repent of that. There's nothing inherently wrong with having an appropriate pride, and you can pick it up in Paul's language, in your cultural identity. I'm a Jew, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. He's proud of that. Nothing wrong with the law. The law is righteous, the Bible says. Nothing wrong with self-discipline. Nothing wrong inherently with competency. I hope we don't wanna be incompetent. The problem was how his privilege and how his performance was leading him to put his confidence in his flesh, to define his identity and his worth by it. So Paul says, I climbed the ladder only to find that I climbed the wrong ladder. There's no future in my past success or achievements, Paul would say. I count those things as loss. They don't add up to a life well lived. They don't give me the satisfaction I'm longing for. He says, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, that's what he's doing. He's comparing it, saying, yes, this is fine, but compared to knowing Jesus, it's rubbish. Literally, the idea is street garbage. This was skubalon, this word. It, it, it's a cuss word in the Greek. Literally, it's rubbish. It's a vulgar word for dung or excrement or filth. In the cities, they had these sewage pipes that essentially ran out of the city through these ditches and outside the city. He says, it's like that. It smells like that. It's awful. Everyone would know what that smelled like. Compared to knowing Jesus, it's nothing. And this is the communion framework that Paul invites us to live into. He says, I wanna, I wanna know Christ. I wanna be found in him. I wanna know the power of his resurrection. I wanna participate, quantania. I wanna share in his sufferings so that I can be conformed to his death and somehow attain to the resurrection of the dead. This is Paul's life now, communion with God, not competency, not trying to find that confidence in myself, in my own abilities, because I know that that's fragile. I know that it doesn't last. It's transitory. But Paul says, I wanna be found in him. That's what it means to know Christ, not to do things for God and be busy doing religious stuff. It's actually to be in Christ. Paul uses that language, in Christ, 
in Christo, a hundred times in the New Testament. It's a mystical term. It's a relational term. It's not a head term. It's not a rational term. It means I want to be, be found in Christ. Christ has found me and he's brought me into himself. He is now the sphere of my existence. This is what we call union in Christ, union with Christ. What we call incorporation into Christ or what the Eastern Orthodox Church would call participation with Christ. It is a present reality. I'm found in Christ, but Paul's also saying I want to be found in Christ in the future. It's a future hope that Paul has. To know Christ, this word know is the word gnosis. It's a rich word. It's not knowing facts about someone, but knowing them and being known by them relationally. Now we're getting dangerous. Emotionally, experientially. To know Christ and to be known by him at the core of my being, such that I'm being transformed by his loving presence. This is at the core of Paul's spirituality. This is the thing that satisfies. Not going to church, not just doing Bible studies, not participating in community, even a faith community. I wanna know Christ, Paul says. It's the language here that knowing is the language of romance. Adam knew Eve. You know what I'm saying, adults? Okay, if not, come talk to me afterwards. In that same way, I want to know God. It's the only time in the entire New Testament where Paul calls Jesus Christ my Lord. This is my Lord. I'm in a personal relationship. It reminds me of Galatians chapter four where Paul is speaking to them about what it means to know Jesus and he says, but now that you have come to know God, and then he corrects himself or, or, or kind of uh, enhances what he's saying, or rather to be known by God. To know God is to be known by God. I love that Deja read this prayer from Ephesians 3 because exactly where I wanted to go with this sermon today. So the Spirit's linking us up. Ephesians 3, I mean, this is the heart of it for me, the summit of this kind of thinking. Ephesians 3, this prayer that Deja read. I wanna be strengthened with power through, my, through his spirit in my inner being so that Christ would dwell, he would fill me through faith, that I would be rooted and grounded in love. And I may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth the fullness, to know the love of Christ, there's the word gnosis, that surpasses knowledge, it's a play on words, that surpasses cognitive assent, that surpasses doctrinal information. And I want that to come into my heart and explode. So you can know something about someone and not know them, not know their love on an emotional level. Like, I know things about my wife when we got married. I knew her birthday was August the 14th, 1981. I knew that she was born in Louisville, Kentucky. I knew that her parents were Richard and Karen Stabb. I knew a lot of facts about her. And I thought that I knew her. So if you're about to get married, just know you don't know anything. <laughs> and she thought she knew some things about me. If she would have really known me, I don't know that she would have ever agreed to marry me. Praise God, we don't have that knowledge from day one. But that's different than knowing her and being known by her, being received by her, being loved by her, and feeling felt in that kind of way. To really know her at the most vulnerable level, to know her hopes, to know her dreams, to know her heart, to know what she cares about, to know what she's afraid of, to know how to, how to please her, to serve her, to love her, to, to die for her. That's different knowledge. You, know, you tracking with me? This is the idea of communion. 
is that I am cultivating this awareness that I am in Christ, that he loves me, he is for me. I am waking up daily seeking to grow in attunement to him and his love for me. It is, as Brother Lawrence said many centuries ago, practicing the presence of Jesus. That is what Paul's talking about here. How can I cultivate that kind of knowledge? That's what it means to be righteous, Paul's saying. To be righteous is to grow, he says, in faith. And that word faith is the word trust, not just belief, we, we take pistis, which is the Greek word there, and we often think belief. It's not just doctrine knowledge. It's not less than that, it's more. Paul says, that's the kind of knowledge. I wanna learn to trust him. Some of us don't trust Jesus, with good reason, some of us. Sociologically, we've had bad experiences in the church, bad experiences with our families of origin. We don't trust very easily. So we believe in Jesus, but he doesn't have our loyalty. He doesn't have our trust. We're not attached to him in the language of psychology. Trust is the foundation of a healthy relationship with God. And it's a completely different way to live than a competency-based approach to God. See, competency people, when they come to God, God's one more thing to be conquered. God's one more thing to be known as you would know facts and data points. They, they memorize doctrinal statements. They master rational, intellectual, external religious things in an attempt to master morality and biblical theology. And we're often obsessed with being right about God. We know lots of facts about God, which I understand. It gives you a sense of control. If I can know about God, then I can control God. I can recreate him in my image. I can make him safe. I can domesticate him. But then I don't have to expose who I really am. I don't have to live with vulnerability I don't have to change at the core of my being. That's the height of re the religious competency paradigm. See, knowers have a hard time being in relationship with God. I am one, I know this. We operate more detached. We have a hard time being in relationship with God and it's why we have a hard time being in relationship with other people, by the way. If I can't feel God on an emotional level, if I can't feel God on an existential level, I'll never be able to feel you on an emotional on an existential level. So I, so I play this game where I'm detached, cold, avoidant, or maybe you're a person that's a little bit more friendly and relational and you just stay busy and you're on a surface level, but you're preoccupied, not satisfied with God. I'll begin to wrap up here with this quote from David Brooks. He says this, you don't climb the second mountain the way you climb the first mountain. You conquer your first mountain. That's the competency framework. You identify the summit, you claw your way toward it. You are conquered by the second mountain. Paul goes on to say later in chapter three, I was apprehended by Christ. He literally came upon me and seized me. <laughs> I was conquered by him. You surrender to some summons. On the first mountain, you're ambitious, strategic, and independent. On the second mountain, you're relational, you're intimate, you're relentless. That's what it means to know Christ. So Paul says, I wanna have that kind of relationship with Christ. That's what's gonna bring about fullness of life and joy is to know him and then to become like him. This idea of being conformed to his death, continuously, day by day learning that it's in dying to all of these things that I thought were success, that I thought were the competencies that were the key to life. I'm dying to these things. As Jesus says, unless a wheat of grain falls into the ground and dies, it will not bear fruit. I'm learning to die so that I might be resurrected. 
And this is the pattern of becoming like Jesus. I'm dying to this way of life so that in the ground, God does a work in me as I'm dying to what I used to think was success. Because by the way, one day you're gonna stand before God and guess what? It's all gonna be burned up anyways. And you will find in that day to your horror that all the things you've been chasing that you thought were success are wrong. So Paul says you can either find that out right now and start dying to it and burying it or, and, and, and then allow it to resurrect. That is the pattern of life with Jesus, becoming conformed. It's literally the idea of form. It's the same word from chapter two. Think concrete footers. You're being poured into these concrete footers, being formed into the image of Jesus, learning to live this cruciform life. Suffering is often what moves us from competency to communion. Paul suffered. He lost everything, he says. Suffering puts us in touch with our vulnerability, puts us in touch with the deepest parts of ourselves, shows us what we're clinging to for life and success. That's why it feels like death, Paul says. Why? Because we're holding on to it. This is my life. This is my whoopee. This is the thing that gives me a sense of righteousness. This grade in grad school, this board exam, this relationship, my children, my status as a certain kind of person on LinkedIn. Paul says, the Christian life's about letting go, man. Let go, and you'll find true life, Paul says. God will raise you up, not resuscitate you, not give you back what you thought you wanted. He will transform it and resurrect you and give you something way more powerful. That's why Paul says, this doesn't work. There's no power in it. What you need is the Spirit of God applying the work of Jesus to your life. By grace, through faith, you trust in him. You trust in his life, his death, his resurrection. You enter into and begin to experience that in the core of your being, and it shifts your identity, and you are changed. And eventually one day, Paul says, your body will be placed in the ground. And your only hope on that day is that what Jesus said is true, that he'll raise you back up. So you start now living out this pattern of death, letting go, life, raising up. One day, Paul says, we're all gonna be resurrected. One day, we'll all be vindicated. This is life with God. The way down is the way up. The way to death is the way to resurrection. And there is no resurrection without death. So let me just encourage you as we close, we go to communion. There's some powerful things that are at work in this, this story here of Paul. What do we do with this? How do we actually appropriate this in our lives? I wanna encourage you to do two things this week. Just very simple, practical things that you can actually do to make this real in your life. One, the power of telling your story. Men, do not underestimate the power of telling your story. I wanna encourage you, if you've not done this work, you're not able to tell your story, your movement from competency to communion with Jesus, again, this ongoing work that we're all in for the rest of our lives, to be able to tell your story is a pathway to transformation, to be able to understand your story. I wanna encourage you to spend some time this week writing down, reflecting on your story. Where do you see Jesus at work in your story? What do you notice as you tell your story? Do you find yourself operating in a competency framework? If so, why? Where does that come from? What does that mean about life with Jesus and what's gonna have to shift in order for that to change? I just want you to write it down. And I want you to find someone you trust, ask them to listen to your story, 
Tell them your story. As you tell your story, you are changed. They are changed. It literally has the potential to rewire and renew your mind to understand your story and to put that story within the story of Jesus. Second thing is I wanna encourage you to practice being known by God. Take Ephesians chapter three, verses 14 to 19 this week. And I literally want you to imagine that you are sitting face to face with Jesus and he's telling you those things. You are my son and my daughter in whom I'm well pleased. What does that evoke in you, that kind of vulnerability? It's terrifying. It goes beyond, God, I need X, Y, and Z this week. Would you just make me safe and healthy and happy and whatever? But to be known, to be accepted, to be loved. Yes, we are sinners. No doubt about that, Paul says. But we are dearly loved sinners. To know the love of God in our sin, to practice being strengthened in the core of our being. That's what it means to know Jesus. We all need to grow. And the more that we grow in our ability to be known by God, Here's the practice for a wholehearted community. The more we're able to do that with one another, the more we're able to feel compassion towards other people in their stories, the more we're able to feel connected to one another because we feel connected to God, we feel safe with God, we feel secure with God, we feel loved by God. I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna take communion and then we're gonna send you out. So let's take a moment and I just wanna invite you to just ask God what, he has for you this morning? What is it that God want, is wanting to say to you? How does he want you to respond? Do you know Christ? If you don't know Christ, cry out to him. God, I wanna trust you, I wanna give you my heart. I don't even know what that means, but I, I wanna enter into this relationship of being known and being loved. I know that this confidence he approached to my life is not working and I am more lost now, even though I'm in the midst of all kinds of success, maybe morally, maybe professionally, but I am lost in all the ways that count. God, would you just come in and enter into my life? Would you give me your love, your peace, your joy in Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection? I want that story to be mine. Maybe you're already in Christ, but you're just like, man, I am a hot mess right now. I'm all over the place and I'm not experiencing the joy that comes with really knowing him. I don't feel known by him. I don't feel known by anyone. I feel alone. I feel abandoned. Would you just invite God into that space? We'd love to talk to you after the service. If you have questions, you wanna, you wanna pray, I'll be outside. I'd love to chat with you about that. But I just wanna invite you to do your business with God here, to invite God into your space right now. And say with Paul, I wanna know you. All these things that I thought were gain are actually loss. I wanna know you, I wanna be found in you, I wanna know the power of your resurrection. I wanna share in your sufferings. I wanna be conformed to your death so that I can attain the resurrection. Let's take a few moments of silence. Then we'll confess our sins together and we'll take communion.